The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. We wrap up this uh, Sermon on the Mount series. And we come to Jesus' final words in the sermon in which he instructs us to listen, to listen and heed his word. He, the master offers a parable that warns by comparing the wise and the foolish builder. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear as I read Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 24 to the end. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the holy and inspired Word of God. Let's pray. Father, as you have just poured out the rain on the, scor- the scorched and parched grass and fields around us, we pray that you pour out your Spirit upon our hearts that may be parched and needy. May we hear from you, from your living Word. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1979, a Category 4 hurricane by the name of Frederick made a direct landing on Mobile Bay in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and in its path of destruction took out my aunt and uncle's beach house along with everything else on shore, leaving practically nothing, nothing left but sand dunes. It took a while, but later on my aunt and uncle found some of their silverware two miles inland. That region, sometimes called Hurricane Alley, is uh, anything close to shore has to be built up on pilings. My aunt and uncle's first home that was destroyed had been built with about 14 to 15 foot pilings, but in their determination to rebuild, they moved the new house back further from the water, and they established the house on 19 foot pilings above ground that were also buried 20 feet deep. When Hurricane Ivan, a Category 5 hurricane, came ashore in 2004, it brought a storm surge of 18 feet. Can you imagine that much water over the beach and shoreline? Many homes were lost, but my aunt and uncle's home stood firm. 
They lost everything beneath it, the stairs, the laundry room, a storage room, a shed. But the house itself was fine. They had to climb up with an extension ladder to get to the home. Even today, you can see the high watermark of Hurricane Ivan, just one foot below the base of the house. A year later, when Katrina hit 150 miles to the west, it barely left a mark. This was a house that was built to withstand the storms of life. Jesus closes his beloved sermon with a parable of two builders, one who built his home to withstand the storms of life and the other who did not. The one had a home on firm foundations, the other on sinking sand. Jesus offers for us two approaches to this life and the life to come. Be careful how you build. Point one, believe by doing the word. Notice that Jesus emphasizes that the hearers of his word must do them. With Scripture, Jesus affirms that belief is no mere affirmation of truth. It requires action. Abraham believed that God would give him and his descendants the promised land, but he took action by moving his family west. Abraham also believed that God could raise the dead but he was ready to slay his only son as an act of obedience. Joshua and the people of Israel believed that the land of Canaan was theirs for the taking, but they actually crossed the Jordan and went in to take it. The prophet Jeremiah believed that God could use his youthful and timid demeanor to confront the apostate leaders of Israel, but he still spoke the truth and stood his ground suffered for it, and was vindicated by God. I believe there is a subtle heresy among American Christians that those who believe the gospel or profess to believe the gospel also sometimes feel free to neglect what it means. We couple with that our culture's attitude that no one has a right to judge you. The problem with cultural Christianity is that it accommodates an affirmation of truth, but without conviction. You can agree without commitment or sacrifice. Jesus clearly wants loyalty, and he seeks followers who have skin in the game. His brother James agrees, as he writes in his letter, to be not mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Faith without deeds is dead. As he were a quick summary of the Sermon on the Mount reveals a lot of very important topics. Jesus addresses anger, lust, marriage, and divorce, keeping your word, loving your enemies, being generous to the poor, prayer, money, anxiety and worry, judging others, the golden rule, and even dealing with false teachers. These are not mere matters like call-in radio where people come to voice their opinions. These are critical issues 
that reveal how the world works, that the Father and Son designed the created order in such a way that we either prosper or perish by whether or not we follow His Word. We will either trust God and order our lives around the revealed truth, or we go our own way, follow the crowds, and do what is right in our own eyes. The former is the path of life. The latter leads to destruction. There is the way that is prosperous in the sight of God, and there is the way that ends in misery. One is built upon a firm foundation. The other is a sinkhole. I believe my children are growing up in an America that is increasingly marginalized, and the Christian faith is, is marginalized, and I believe that my children face a day and age where it will become less socially advantageous to be a professing Christian. They may even experience losing social capital for being members of a church that believes and obeys the Bible as the Word of God. Our view of sin, human nature, grace, salvation, authority, and morality are on the losing side of this particular historical moment. So be it. The way of the world will be on the losing side of history on God's great and final day of judgment. Point two, be prepared for the storms of life. Growing up in Houston, Texas, we learned how to be ready for coming storms. As soon as a hurricane was on the horizon, people rush out to the grocery stores and buy batteries and stock up on water and goods and fill up their cars with gas. Business owners even board up their windows to protect them from flying debris. The big hurricane of 2005 was Katrina. But weeks, weeks later, Hurricane Rita reached the Texas coast. And as the coastal peoples saw the devastation that struck New Orleans, they took their evacuation seriously. They all got out of Dodge at the same time. And what we had on the southeast Texas highways were traffic jams and people stuck as they ran out of gas and the filling stations were empty, and it led to a humanitarian crisis for lack of water and other goods, and the, the governor of Texas had to order a state of emergency to release the Texas National Guard to bring gas and food and water and supplies to get people going again away from the damage. The city of Houston recognized and responded to this crisis and disaster by organizing a coastal evacuation plan to let people depart from the coast in order, in a timely manner, and it even designated several spots across the city to establish shelters. And they even recruited tens of thousands of volunteers who would be ready on short notice to deliver goods and uh, cots and blankets and other needs to meet uh, people coming to the shelter. And so when Hurricane Ike struck Galveston three years later, the city of Houston and the entire region was ready. Jesus says, be ready. The storms of life are coming. His reference to the rains and the floods and the winds all illustrate the kinds of trials and hardships God's people will face in this broken and fallen world. 
Now, some storms are like hurricanes. They give you some advance notice. There's lead time to prepare. But other trials are more like tornadoes, fast and furious. You're not quite sure where exactly it's going to strike until the last minute. They catch you off guard. My first experience of a hurricane was Alicia in August of, two, of 1983. But our property suffered far more damage from a great storm that struck that spring where multiple thunderheads collided to bring rain, hail, wind, and nearly a hundred tornadoes across Harris County in one night. One of those tornadoes went over our neighborhood. And I can still remember the sound of that wind brisking past our home, shaking the house, sounding like a Mack truck speeding down the street. The wind was so strong that it snapped a great pine tree in the neighbor's yard and used it like a baseball bat to take out my favorite climbing tree, a large oak in the front yard. In the morning, you could see nothing out my front window because it was covered with tree branches. The storms of life come in many forms. Marital disharmony, a dead-end job, job insecurity, excessive debt, a lack of retirement readiness, severed relationships, ridicule for your faith even from your own family members, health crises, aging, sudden and unexpected death, slow and dehumanizing death. The sorrows that God's people will suffer are legion. And we don't even experience the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters experience across Asia and Africa. In order to withstand these storms of life, we must build upon the foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ, by his life, his teaching, his death, resurrection, and intercession at the Father's right hand. We must also dig deep like my uncle's beach house pilings, digging deep into God's Word. The one who calmed the sea can calm your storm and give you the confidence that even when life deals you its worst, you can have hope that God's best is still yet to come. But sometimes there are trials that expose the weakness of a foundation that prove that it's not up to the test. I recall a father whose oldest son made shipwreck of his faith. And rather than stay strong, it led to the downfall of the father's faith. It was too much. It exposed his weak foundation, and he joined his own son in apostasy. He lacked the persevering grace to long suffer with his prodigal son. Sometimes I wonder if the son was testing the father to see if his faith was true. But he lacked a firm foundation. Point three, be wise, not foolish. Jesus says the wise man builds his house upon the rock, on something solid and firm, where the foolish builds his house on the sand that washes out with the floods. The wise are grounded, are rooted in something that is unmovable. 
the last several generations of the church here in the West, many of whom have traded away the bedrock foundation of God's Word in order to accommodate modernism, trying to merge God's unchanging truth with the constantly changing winds of modern opinion on human origins, morality, human destiny, results in a man-centered gospel that's a poor resemblance to the gospel that Jesus clearly taught. It's like kids playing Jenga in the back of a car on the long car trip. It just keeps toppling over. It's not a fixed object. In the final words of our text, we read that the crowds were astonished because Jesus taught with authority. There are many pretend authorities in our day and age who appeal to science or some new study or some new poll that is establishing some truth that's contrary to God's Word. Let me exhort us to not abandon the higher authority of God's Word over all the pretend authorities vying for our attention in this day and age. So what does a firm foundation look like? First in the church, and secondly, in each of our lives. Well, as the old hymn reads, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Tradition is not the foundation of the church, though tradition is and can be a very good thing. Precedents and policies have their value, but they are, are no substitute for the gospel. I grew up in the same denomination as the founders of this church. I can remember sitting in junior high Sunday school where the teacher was far more interested in contemporary events than the teachings of Scripture. And she valued the opinions of junior high kids without evaluating where they stood compared to God's holy and inspired word. When I came to Saving Faith years later as a junior in high school, it, it didn't take me long to realize that the senior pastor was preaching from what I call the book of reflections rather than the Bible. He was a good communicator as far as the wisdom of men concern, are concerned, but he sounded more and more like man's gospel than God's gospel. Like my oldest son, who's serving as our youth intern this summer, I was an uh, intern in that church after my freshman year of college. And I'm not, not sure where that youth director really stood spiritually. She was nice and fun and kind enough to let me take over the ministry and, with my youthful zeal and bluster, teach God's Word to many youth. And many of them were awakened when they heard the gospel as though for the first time at lock-ins and Sunday school classes and Bible studies. God was at work, and so was Satan. Many of the parents appreciated my teaching, my ministry, and others hated it. When I was teaching a, a senior high Sunday school class one Sunday, one of the prominent adults in that ministry stood up to just boldly confront me and challenge me, insisting that Satan did not exist. Parents of a lesbian daughter objected strongly to my teaching on biblical marriage and sexuality. My wife and I are so deeply grateful to raise up our children in a ministry 
that champions the Word of God and doesn't despise it or seek to mold and conform God's eternal truth with the ways of modern sentiment. Westminster Church rests upon the foundation of doctrinal clarity, not ambiguity. On the historic orthodox understanding that Scripture is inspired by God through the prophets and the apostles to reveal His eternal truth. The Bible is not just a truth for a particular people long ago. It is as true now as it ever has been. Even if it falls out of favor with people in our day who know better how to define marriage, how to usurp parents' authority to discipline their children, to terminate unplanned pregnancies, to short-circuit end-of-life care with assisted suicide and many, many other issues of our day. As Dr. Rogers said last week, our culture does not dictate our doctrine, but oftentimes sets the agenda for what we must address from Scripture. I remind people that God's Word is always offensive. The message of the resurrection was offensive to the Greeks and Romans of Jesus' day. They didn't want bodily resurrection. Death was the soul's escape from the prison cell of the body. Gentiles did not want to give up their sexual immorality. Jews did not want to welcome Gentiles into their faith community, Gentiles that would not embrace their dietary laws and cleansing rituals. The self-righteous did not want to give up their merit-based approach to salvation in exchange for trusting in the righteous works of Christ and his sacrifice for sins. The gospel is always offensive and it critiques every culture across the face of the earth. Americans love their freedom. Easy divorce. Easy credit. The Hindus are happy to incorporate Jesus as just another guru in their pantheon of spiritual leaders rather than embrace him as the one true creator, Lord, and Savior of mankind. Loving one's enemies is a foreign concept to many people across the earth, but God is using it to convert scores of Muslims who see a better way through those who are willing to sacrifice their lives and their livelihoods to spread the good news. So what does a firm foundation look like for you? Well, building a firm foundation does not mean perfect obedience. That's what Jesus did on our behalf, something that we could not do. We all stumble. We all fall. And besetting sin is normative in this life as the flesh wars against the spirit. We are weak and vulnerable. But a life built upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ is one that's committed to the pursuit of holiness, to repenting well and often, and putting sin to death. It requires humility, self-awareness, and commitment to community. We must know how vulnerable we are to put up the proper safeguards to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and even the honor of Jesus Christ. For some, that means being accountable with your online activity, with how you spend your money, avoiding corrupting influences, staying clear of addicting substances, 
life that's built upon the foundation of Christ honors His reputation more than one's own. It may mean sacrificing financial gain for your own spiritual good or your family's welfare. And it will mean appropriating God's grace when you do yield to temptation. The gospel life does not wallow in regret. Bargain with God, making insincere false promises, but rather resting in affirming the promise of God of forgiveness for those who repent and believe and act upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. So stop beating yourself up with self-condemnation. Get up and walk as a well-loved child of the living God. A firm foundation leaves no room for a vindictive and resentful spirit towards others. Leave judgment to God and show other people the same grace that God has shown you in Christ Jesus. Life on the rock does not yield to bitterness or despair. Self-pity is of the devil. Humility and faith come from the Lord. Life on the rock, though, is not one of comfort and ease. It is hard. It requires vigilance to search one's heart, to bring one's mind and thoughts under the scrutiny of God's Word and Spirit. It is painful to grow in your awareness of how corrupt and broken you are, to see with horrifying new depths the nature of sin. It can lead to despair without the gospel but it also leads to a greater appreciation of God's grace, of his faithfulness to love you and pursue you and accept you, though you and I are the worst of sinners. You remember how Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, sleeping on the back of the boat when his terrified disciples asked him to rise up to bring the storm to its end. That event just foreshadowed Jesus calming a greater storm. The coming wrath of God, swallowing all of its fury by his life ransomed on the cross at Calvary. If we would weather the storm coming on the day of judgment, we must rest secure on the firm foundation of the gospel. The righteous find their refuge in Christ alone. The woman of Proverbs 31 could laugh at the days ahead because she was prepared. Are you prepared for the storms of life? Is your life built upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ to an extent that you can endure painful loss, a dire diagnosis, a damaged reputation, relational dysfunction? And are you prepared for the ultimate storm of God's coming wrath? In the days of Noah, there was one way to flee the coming flood. You had to get on the ark. Jesus Christ is that ark. There is only one way, one way of escape from the coming tempest of God's holy judgment. Go to the rock. Come to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd the gate for the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And if your life and your eternal destiny rest squarely on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, you will never be put to shame.
Some of you may recall the tragic mudslides that took place in California back in January, where many homes fell down a great slope. A man that serves in our presbytery lost his father and almost his brother as their home traveled three quarters of a mile down a long slope and across a highway. It's a miracle his brother even survived. And this faithful man wrote a prayer uh, report to those of us, pastors and elders in our presbytery. And I want to read what he had to say. He says, Thank you all for your prayers. The mudslide was the most tragic time of my life. I miss my dad incredibly, never having experienced such lasting pain and grief. But I've been comforted much from the gospel, the scriptures, and the faithful prayers of God's people. Thankfully, there is much to rejoice in. I was able to preach my dad's funeral. People estimate that between 1,000 and 1,200 people came to the funeral. So I give the Lord praise for the opportunity to witness to his power, to preach the gospel to so many people who need to know the Lord. Additionally, my other brother and older brother with his wife and three kids happened to not be in the home when the mudslide occurred. They had been living in the house and just happened to move out to work on their house recently purchased. Thankfully, I'm not having to bury eight family members, many of whom who are not ready to meet the Lord in glory. Pray that God wakes them up, that they would repent and believe. My dad, however, he was ready. Are you ready? Like this man's godly father. And are you able, like this man who lost so much, but whose strong and abiding faith in Christ enabled him to weather this grievous trial and even serve as a great witness to his mourning family? May your foundation remain firm and secure in the solid bedrock of God's holy word in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our great and gracious God and Father, thank you so much for giving a firm foundation upon which we stand, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would make us steady, secure us. May we hold fast and stand against the storms to trust you, to follow you, and to bring you much glory and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.